Well, okay. Hello. We uh, um we are on the, it is today is the fourth day of Hanukkah. Tonight is the fifth night of Hanukkah. And we'll take a pause from our Torah study today to um do some explorations of Hanukkah for this hour. And given that we have this nice space where I don't uh, my job can be very doesn't have to be a few minutes of inspiration, but we can actually kind of dig in. Um, I've been having a lot of fun today being his, being historically and anthropology-minded um, in looking at all these sources about what the origin of Hanukkah is, not just the, not beyond the story we tell about the miracle of Hanukkah and the oil lasting eight days and all that, that's just fine. Um, but so I wanna put on our historical and comparative, uh, comparative cultural hats on today for a while. That's just cause where my attention went, it really grabbed me again. And in addition to looking up sources online, which I'll share some of some with you. I was also grabbed this book off my shelf that I've had for years that I really enjoy. Um, I don't even know if it's in print still. It's called Holidays, History, and Halacha by Eliezer Siegel. This was an Aronson publication, and Aronson went out of business a while ago. Mm. I don't even know who Eliezer Siegel is, um, but he's a wonderful writer who looks into um, who who looks into the historical origins of Jewish practices and customs in an anecdotal way in this book. It's different, it's little, um, little articles. Maybe he wrote them for a newspaper or something. I'll look into it later. So I was looking in that too, it's really fun. Okay, so let's start uh, by acknowledging something that's become clearer and clearer to us in our global era that winter solstice, um, uh, mar that cultures all over the world have and always have marked the winter solstice, marked the journey of the earth around the sun or the sun around the earth, as it, however they thought of it. I mean, look at Stonehenge uh, as an example. Um, one culture doing it in ancient Babylonia, we know that they had winter the Parsha reference, Joan, I'm not talking about a Parsha today. I'm talking about Hanukkah. Um, ancient Babylonia, they had um, uh, a large solstice festival. I was trying to read about it. It's like the sources aren't entirely clear to me and I didn't have time to do enough research, but. It sounds like it was a 12-day undertaking. Uh, the Persian Zoroastrians, who, for whom fire is a very important symbol, certainly had a winter solstice festival. Um, since the bulk of the Jewish community um, was in ancient Babylonia, which became Iraq and Persia, um, beginning in the sixth century BCE, many, many Jewish practices seem to be able to trace their origins to um, 
Oh, that book's still available. Thank you, Naomi. Thank you so much. The Holidays, History and Halacha. He wrote a second volume of this kind of thing that I want to get after reading this one again. So maybe I'll be able to find that one as well. Um, anyway, uh, the, um, uh, uh, since so much of the Jewish community lived in the Tigris and Euphrates region, especially after the exile from Babylonia, the exile to Babylonia in the sixth century BCE, and because the Babylonian Talmud was composed, the Talmud that we study was composed and collated by Jewish scholars who lived in that region. Um, it's, it's, it's a very ver verifiable assumption that Babylonian customs were adapted to Jewish purposes. Uh, we know that simply from the Jewish calendar. The Jewish calendar, the months of the Jewish calendar, Tishrei, Cheshvan, Kislev, um, and all of them are the name, the Babylonian names of the month. They're not Hebrew names. In older texts in the Bible, pre-Babylonian texts, there are names for, for the seasons in Hebrew, like Aviv for spring. But in the calendar that was ultimately adopted, we don't see the word Aviv for that month. We see the word Nisan, which is the Babylonian name of the month. So the Jewish people adopted over time because of the, because of the preeminence of the Babylonian Jewish community um, and the cultural hegemony of, of that uh, of the Near East for centuries from that region, adopted the Babylonian calendar, which is the lunar solar calendar that we use to this day. The Jewish calendar was the Babylonian calendar. Uh, a little aside, um, it's not clear to me whether the Babylonian calendar included the seven day week um, because the cognate word for Shabbat in the Babylonian Aramaic was sabatu, but that seems to refer to the full moon. So, and also because the seven day week equals 28 days and the lunar calendar is 29, it's just not clear to me. I'm sure some scholars have been able to associate it to figure that out, but I don't know. I still think the seven day week with the brilliance of Shabbat at its uh, apex is something the Jews maybe took from some Babylonian source, but we made it all our own that way. Anyway, that's another interesting discussion. So since we know that the Jewish calendar what, that was adopted eventually is the same as the Babylonian calendar and that the Babylonian calendar had a solstice festival at the end of the year, would make sense that the, Babel, that the Babylonian Jews would have adapted eventually the local practice into Jewish practice, you know, put a veneer of Jewish practice on what we were already doing. And I say, don't say veneer um, pejoratively, um, uh, wove Jewish, wove Jewish teachings and lore into the existing holiday. This is true 
of every Jewish holiday. Every Jewish holiday takes its origins from the seasonal cycles and the agricultural rhythms of the ancient Near East. Um, Passover, we see enough clues, just for example, that Passover was originally an agricultural festival uh, that got the story of the Exodus and the reason we eat unleavened bread and all those things woven into it. So it's actually the most beautiful thing for me to study Rosh Hashanah, which is where we add all this language about God as king corresponds on the Babylonian calendar to the re-enthronement ceremony of the Babylonian king. So the Jews would take that and say, well, we worship the king of kings and take those, take those themes. So we can look throughout history. There is no, you know how we say, we love to say, so many people talk about how Christ, Christmas is really a, a pagan holiday. Well, every holiday is a pagan holiday, right? I mean, so are all the Jewish holidays. So let's just drop that and not rationalize why we have, like having a Christmas tree. It's like, have a Christmas tree, fine. It's okay. You don't have to, you don't have to rationalize it. Anyway, um, my point is that there is no such thing as cultural uh, hermetically sealed culture, um, especially when you're a minority in a larger system, right? We just absorb it all and we metabolize it and then we reinvent it. And that's the way all Jewish holidays um, develop. We're watching that metabolization of Hanukkah happen right now in our lifetimes, right? I don't have to elaborate deeply. We all know that Hanukkah had the good or misfortune of being attached to being at the same time of year as Christmas in the era when Christmas became hyper-commercialized. And we're all the victims of that, right? And Hanukkah just gets sucked along. And so who figured that blue and white were Jewish colors? It's like, okay, it's not red and green. And, who, and so it's all happening in real time. The elf, I was talking with the family school parents yesterday about this craze of elf on a shelf, which apparently is a marketing bit of genius. Everybody has it and puts it on their shelf. And there's a whole like story developing about the elf on the shelf who is like, I think spying on you and telling Santa or something. I'm not even sure. And now all the kids in our family school, they want an elf on the shelf because all their friends are talking about it. So somebody just came out with something called a couple of years ago called a mensch on a bench. <laughs> I kid you not. Um, oh, the elf is QAnon. Okay, Rob, we're really going places now. Anyhow, <laughs> my point is let's have fun examining multiple origins and sources and how they get cooked up into what becomes our mythology. And I don't say that pejoratively. So that's what I was looking at. And I'll also add, um, uh, right, our story, David says, Abram's family was originally from a family of idol worshipers. 
Abraham reoriented his family to be worshipers of a single creator. That is our myth about Abram. Um, and uh, the Jewish take on all of this is certainly that there's a single creator. Um, uh, so thank you for that. Um, so let's enjoy the mashup and the creativity and the, and the, what I was gonna say is the, the reason I was so drawn to reconstructionism is because it celebrates evolving culture. It doesn't try to apologize for it, rationalize it away, claim that there's actually um, an unchanging truth, but rather it celebrates as a, from a modern perspective, the incredible adaptability of Judaism that has allowed us to survive. Uh, so that Hanukkah becomes what we need it to be in every era. And yet we still experience a sense of continuity with the past. That is a thing to celebrate for me, not to be afraid of because it, it's sort of like, look at how creative we are and adaptable that allow us generation to generation to keep this incredible heritage alive. So I just want you to, to understand that that's my framework rather than the opposite framework of trying to explain how it's still the same, right? It's still the same in certain ways and in certain ways, not at all. And yet we have this sense of continuity and that's what I really enjoy. Um, okay, so in addition to the, so it would, one would assume that the Jewish people participated in solstice, marking solstice commemorations, as did the larger human societies and cultures since we started looking at the sky. Um, so you have the Babylonian influence, and then, and some of you will know more about this than I do probably, you have the influence of Saturnalia. Saturnalia was the um, Roman, throughout the Roman Empire. It wasn't a regional festival. It was throughout the Roman Empire and it was marked on December 17th. And it was a, fest, a solstice festival in which, here, let me read about it, hold on. This is from Wikipedia. Saturnalia was an ancient Roman festival and holiday in honor of the god Saturn, held on the 17th of December of the Julian calendar and later expanded with festivities through to 23rd December. So it was seven days. Oh, um, the holiday was celebrated with a sacrifice at the temple of Saturn in the Roman Forum and a public banquet followed by private gift giving, continual partying, and a carnival, carnival atmosphere that overturned Roman social norms. Gambling was permitted and masters provided table service for their slaves as it was seen as a time of liberty for both slaves and freedmen alike. 
uh, a common custom was the election of a king of the Saturnalia who would give orders to people which were to be followed and preside over the merrymaking. The gifts exchanged were usually gag gifts or small figurines made of wax or pottery. The poet Catullus called it the best of days. We've been doing this a long time. Um, here's another excerpt. Gambling and dice playing, normally prohibited or at least frowned upon, were permitted for all, even slaves. Coins and nuts were the stakes. Sound familiar to Dreidel? Um, uh, now you have license to play games with your master. Let's see, rampant overeating and drunkenness became the rule and the sober person the exception, it says here. Um, children received toys as gifts. And uh, an interesting thing is that the little wax figurines and pottery figurines may have been an echo of when uh, a human sacrifice was offered at this time. Let's see, Ruth says, there was a group of us that celebrated Saturnalia as a large outside event in Rosendale many years ago. Indeed, indeed. Um, okay, so there's a context for you. Now let's go to Jewish history. Um, oh, let's see, someone wrote in, Rabbi Ellen, pagan doesn't have to be pejorative. Pagan religions can be seen as pre-modern, but the human impulse to understand how the world works, bring light into the darkest time of the year, is clearly universal because it exists in so many cultures all over the world. Thank you, Rabbi Ellen. Doesn't pagan come from the uh, Latin word for farmer, peasant? I believe so. Um, okay. So now with that as a background, we can turn to Hanukkah because just like every other Jewish holiday, somehow in this organic and somewhat mysterious way that things develop, um, it got a historical uh, uh, event woven into it. In the year one, this, this seems to be historical fact that in the year 167 BCE, Antiochus IV, the emperor of the Seleucid Empire, wanted to be declared Antiochus Epiphanes, the god of the region. And he um, put his own statue in the temples and order, including the temple in Jerusalem, of which Judea was a part of his empire, right? The Jews who lived in Judea were a, uh, a, a province of, his, of Antiochus's Seleucid Empire. And um, uh, banned Jewish practices uh, for, as, as, as you may know, the, the, the priesthood in Jerusalem and the intelligentsia in Jerusalem had been, the upper class, had been for many generations now adopting Greek ways. So for many, this was not a bridge too far. And uh, much of the population, a certain significant part of the population went along with these restrictions. 
the country folk, who would, I guess were the pagans, <laughs> the Jewish pagans, the Jewish old timers in the country, they rebelled against these restrictions. And in what appears to be a very unlikely victory, succeeded in a three-year revolt in recapturing Jerusalem and reclaiming the temple. We know this, and of course, what do we know? What exactly happened? Well, we, we weren't there. However, there are two books, and I'm gonna, there's a lot of irony in all this that I wanna make sure I lay out to you because for me, it just makes it all richer. There are two books called the Book of Maccabees One and the Book of Maccabees Two, which are contemporaneous or certainly shortly thereafter accounts of what took place. And I know some of you will know this information, but not all of you know it, so I'm gonna share it with you. Um, in the book of Maccabees, one, which would appear to have been written originally in Hebrew, although that Hebrew version was lost and it was only retained in a Greek translation. And the book of Maccabees too, which appears to have been written in Greek because Greek was the lingua franca the, of, of, of the time in, in the Roman Empire, early part of the Roman Empire. Oh, this is pre-Roman in the Greek, in Alexandrian time. The Greek, Greek was the language of Hellenism. Um, uh, talk about what happened. Let me share my screen, share a couple of famous passages from the book of Mecca. Oops, let's see, I gotta move this. Just a sec. Hold on, sorry about that. Let me take care of this. Okay. All right. Book of Maccabees. Judas, Judah Maccabee, appointed men to attack those in the citadel while he purified the sanctuary. He chose blameless priests devoted to the law. And these purified the sanctuary and carried away the stones of the abomination to an unclean place. That means the altar. They deliberated what ought to be done with the altar of burnt offerings that had been desecrated because under Antiochus's rule, uh, uh, swine were sacrificed on that altar. The happy thought came to them to tear the altar down, lest it be a lasting shame to them that the Gentiles had defiled it. So they tore down the altar. They stored the stones in a suitable place on the temple hill until a prophet should come and decide what to do with them. Then they took uncut stones, according to the law, in the Torah, and built a new altar like the former one. They made new sacred vessels and brought the lampstand, that's the menorah, the seven-branched menorah that was part of the accoutrements of the temple as described in, in the Torah, the altar of incense, and the table for the showbread into the temple. Then they burned incense on the altar and lighted the lamps on the lampstand. And these illuminated the temple. Lampstand is, is the menorah. 
And early in the morning on the 25th day of the ninth month, that is the month of Kislev, in the year 148, they arose and offered sacrifice according to the law on the new altar of the burnt offerings that they had made. On the anniversary of the day on which the Gentiles had defiled it, on that very day it was reconsecrated with songs, harps, flutes, and cymbals. All the people prostrated themselves and adored and praised heaven who had given them success. And for eight days, they celebrated the dedication of the altar and joyfully offered burnt offerings and sacrifices of deliverance and praise. There was great joy among the people now that the disgrace of the Gentiles was removed. Okay, I wanna talk about that a little, this line. On the anniversary of the day, on which the Gentiles defied it, the 25th of Kislev. Think about that for a moment. If that's true, then maybe the 25th of Kislev was an important festival already, right? Relating to the solstice. Because on the Babylonian calendar, the 25th of Kislev is the dark, uh, it begins the, it is the period where the moon is dark closest to the winter solstice. So as I've taught in years past, Hanukkah falls, thanks to the lunar solar calendar, on the longest and darkest moonless nights of the year. So were they specifically rededicating the temple on that day? It doesn't say explicitly. I find that fascinating. Here, let me share the next interesting tidbit from the book of Maccabees. Ah, this is from the second book, the second book of Maccabees. In some kind of letter that is sent out to the people. We are now reminding you to celebrate the Feast of Sukkot in the month of Kislev. The Feast of Sukkot takes place two months earlier in Tishrei, dated in the year 148, dot, dot, dot. We shall be celebrating the purification of the temple on the 25th of the month Kislev. So we thought it right to inform you that you too may celebrate the feast of Sukkot and of the fire that appeared when Nehemiah, after he built the temple and the altar, offered sacrifices. Nehemiah was the governor of Judea whom the Persian king Cyrus allowed to come back to Judea in the year 400 and something and reestablished Jerusalem and the temple hundreds of years earlier. And apparently there is a legend about Nehemiah, which is centuries before this is being written. Listen, when our fathers were exiled to Persia, devout priests of the time took some of the fire from the altar and hid it secretly in the hollow of a dry cistern, making sure that the place would be unknown to anyone. 
many years later, when it so pleased God, Nehemiah, commissioned by the king of Persia, sent the descendants of the priests who had hidden the fire to look for it. When they informed us they could not find any fire, but only muddy water, he informed them to scoop some out and bring it. And after the material for the sacrifices had been prepared, Nehemiah ordered the priest to sprinkle with the water the wood and what lay on it. And when this was done, and in time the sun, which had been clouded over, began to shine, a great fire blazed up so that everyone marveled. While the sacrifice was being burned, the priests recited a prayer and all present joined in with them. Jonathan leading to a different Jonathan and the rest responding with Nehemiah's words. And then the priests began to sing hymns. After the sacrifice was burned, Nehemiah ordered the rest of the liquid to be poured on large stones. And as soon as this was done, a flame blazed up, blazed up but its light was lost in the brilliance cast from a light on the altar. And Nehemiah and his companions called the liquid tihur, meaning purification. But most people named it naphtha, meaning kerosene. Interesting. Okay. What is going on in that story? The Zoroastrians worshipped fire. Persia. Nehemiah returns from Persia with this fire story about how the fire on the altar had been hidden away when they were exiled. And now, yes, we're going to get to that source next. But what I'm finding here are multiple sources, all like, none of it says anything. I need to point this out to you. None of these contemporaneous sources say anything about the oil lasting for eight days when it was only enough for one. The, the punchline of all this is that we don't have that story until several hundred years later in the Talmud. In the contemporaneous sources, there is no Hanukkah miracle that has to do with oil for one night lasting eight days. That comes hundreds of years later. Here's a story about sacred fire being lit on the solstice festival, but transmuted into a story about Nehemiah coming back from Persia, finding that secret light and doing some kind of sympathetic magic to have it blaze up again, as bright as the sun, because the sun is gonna return now, thanks to us lighting lights at the darkest time of year, we're invoking the return of the sun. So, okay, that's in the book of Maccabees. Then, listen to this next excerpt from the book of Maccabees. Oh, mute yourselves, somebody. Uh, I'll do it. There we go. Here's, this is also in the book of Maccabees on the anniversary of the day on which the temple had been profaned by foreigners, that is the 25th of the same month, Kislev, the purification of the temple took place. So we still have the clear identification of the 25th of Kislev with a previous festival. The Jews celebrated joyfully for eight days as on the Feast of Booths, 
Sukkot, remembering how a little while before, just months before, they had spent the Feast of Booths living like wild animals in the mountains and in caves as they fought for Jerusalem. Carrying rods entwined with leaves, meaning lulavs, beautiful branches and palms, they sang hymns of grateful praise to him who had successfully brought about the purification of his own place, God. By public decree and vote, they prescribed that the whole Jewish nation should celebrate these days every year. Okay, I love that. So boom, boom, they've co-opted the solstice celebration and said, this is a Jewish holiday. And they do it, and this might be true. Sukkot, again, forgive me if you know this already. In the time of the temple in ancient Judea, Sukkot was more important even than Passover. So important that it's referred to in our ancient sources as the festival without even a name. It was when the month of Tishrei, when all the Jews would make pilgrimage to Jerusalem, blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, fast and gain atonement on Yom Kippur, and then spend eight days celebrating a successful harvest. That was Sukkot. Nothing was more important. It says torches would be lit and incredible revelry and celebration, sacrifices. And um, it appears that the Maccabees had been unable to celebrate the festival that fall because they were at war. So that when they successfully captured the temple and reconsecrated it, they then declared, we're celebrating Sukkot late this year because we couldn't do it two months ago. But which date did they choose to celebrate it? They chose an existing festival date in the whole, that, that seemed, that's good timing, isn't it? And so Hanukkah, which, uh, whose full name is uh, Hanukkah Habayat or Hanukkah, the, the rededication of the Hanukkah Hamizbeach, the rededication of the altar, they saved it for this date. Um, and it appears they celebrated for eight days to match the Sukkot celebration. But the Saturnalia, remember the Saturnalia festivities lasted seven days. So they were on a solar calendar, but it was closed. It, it's like, it's all kind of connected and we can't know exactly, but I love um, discerning these pretty clear clues in the text about what was going on. The next reference, oh, let's see. Yes, the next reference to Sukkot that we have in terms of historical progression is from Josephus, the Jewish historian of the first, late first century. And Josephus says, this is interesting to me. Oh, it's, it's not too long. So Josephus is writing a history of the Jews for his Roman audience in the year 90, perhaps, of the first century. And here's his talking about Hanukkah. When therefore the generals of Antiochus's armies had be been beaten so often 
Judas assembled the people together and told them that after these many victories which God had given them, they ought to go up to Jerusalem and purify the temple and offer the appointed sacrifices. But as soon as he with the whole multitude was come to Jerusalem and found the temple deserted and its gates burnt down and plants growing in the temple of their own accord on account of its desertion, he and those that were with him began to lament and were quite confounded at the sight of the temple. So he chose out some of his soldiers and gave them order to fight against those guards that were in the citadel until she should have purified the temple. When therefore he had carefully purged it and had brought in new vessels, the menorah, the table, and the altar of incense, which were made of gold, he hung up the veils at the gates and added doors to them. He also took down the altar of burnt offering, built a new one of stones that he gathered together, and not of such as were hewn with iron tools. They have to be unhewn. So on the fifth, five and 20th day of the month, Kislev, they lighted the lamps that were on the candlestick and offered incense upon the altar of incense and laid the loaves upon the table and offered burnt offerings upon the new altar. Thus far corresponds somewhat well with the previous earlier version. Now, Judas celebrated the festival of the restoration of the sacrifices of the temple for eight days and omitted no sort of pleasures thereon, but he feasted them upon very rich and splendid sacrifices. And he honored God and delighted them with hymns and songs. Nay, they were so very glad at the revival of their customs when after a long time of intermission, they unexpectedly had regained the freedom of their worship, that they made it a law for posterity, that they should keep a festival on account of the restoration of their temple worship for eight days. And from that time to this, we would celebrate this festival and call it the Festival of Light. I suppose the reason was because this liberty beyond our hopes appeared to us. And that thence was the name given. To the festival. Oh, how interesting. Josephus doesn't even call it Hanukkah. He calls it the festival of light, and it's filled with feasts and splendid sacrifices. And it's starting to sound a little like Saturnalia to me. Joseph is, uh, Josephus is writing it for a Roman audience at this point. Um, and there is no mention still of the miracle of the oil. That's going to be a later mashup that Jewish sources create that becomes the story of Hanukkah. And again, let's not think of it pejoratively. I mean, look, like Santa Claus, like it's all, it, we're, we, if you've studied the, the early origins of all these Christmas things that are now Christmas, it's like, it's the same phenomenon and it's always gonna be the same phenomenon. We're always gonna be weaving and merging sources together. Now, in the Talmud, 
the rabbis give an origin story for it all. Our rabbis taught. Adam saw that the days were getting shorter. And he said, oi, that's what it says in the Hebrew actually, oi, uh, perhaps because I was corrupted, sinful, the world is getting dark and returning to chaos. And this is the death which was decreed upon me by heaven. He stood and he waited eight days in fasting and prayer. And when he saw that the month of Tevet came, which is the month after Kislev, and that the days were starting to grow longer, he said, oh, this is the way of the world. Okay, in other words, they're imagining Adam who's never been through a set of seasons before. And as the days get shorter and shorter, he thinks that the original chaos that God had tamed and made into the world, the tohu babohu, he thinks that, that original chaos is overtaking creation again. And he wonders if it's because of his fault. And he prays and fasts, hoping that his behavior might bring back order. Let there be light. Remember, that's the first day of creation. Let there be light which brings order to chaos. And he's terrified. He's the first person. He's never seen winter before. And so when he sees that chaos doesn't return and the days start getting longer again, he said, oh, this is the way the world works. And so he went and made an eight-day festival. The next year he made these festivals Kalenda and Saturna, the Greco-Roman festivals, into holidays. He established them for the sake of heaven, and yet they established them for idolatry. Okay, that's, a, again, a very dense package. Uh, the rabbis, um, yes, I'm going to get to that too, Rabbi Ellen. Um, it's, just, it's just, I know I wouldn't be able to do it all in an hour, but I, I, I was just, I'm having fun. So, um, so there's this midrash that says that Adam created the first solstice festival. And that the Greeks and the Romans derived their festivals from Adam. And the problem is the Greeks and the Romans turn their festivals into idolatrous practices. Whereas that was not Adam's intention. The rabbis are saying, we're fulfilling Adam's intention with our celebration of Hanukkah. And that Saturnalia is a perversion of something that goes back literally to day one, that we're doing right. So that's classic. Cultural stuff, right? You know, showing how we don't know where this all started, but telling a story that shows how we're the ones who are the are the keepers of the deepest and truest foundations of that tradition. No mention of a miracle. Once again, we first hear of this miracle in the Talmud, which is maybe the year four hundred. 
We are not even sure. Could be older, of course. Where it says, oh, whoops, I didn't paste that in. Hold on. I have it on a different screen. Just one sec. I'm not finding it, just a moment. Oh, I see. I think I closed it back then, but I know this passage. In the Talmud, they're discussing various holidays and they say, what is Hanukkah? My Hanukkah. And they say, well, it's because when the Hasmoneans defeated the Greeks, the oil that they found in the re in the re um, uh, in the the sanctified temple was only enough for one day, but it lasted for eight days, and therefore we celebrate the festival for eight days. What Ellen Weaver wrote, which is the common which is our common consensus now, but what's going on? is that when the rabbis were concerned about our celebrating a military victory while under occupation, they came up with the oil story. Somehow, we don't know, but here's, here's a guess. We have enough from rabbinic sources to know, and you've heard me teach this before, that once the Hasmoneans, the Maccabees, took over and reestablished a sovereign Jewish government in Jerusalem for the first time in centuries. They put themselves on the throne and then the king was also appointed the high priest. This was anathema to the, to the rabbis who were interpreters of the Torah at the time. We're in the first century BCE. Um, because it says in the Torah, the, the king is not a high priest. The high priest and the king were two different positions. And what we know from history is that the Hasmoneans were notoriously corrupt. Just imagine, think of Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua, right? He leads this, he's this idealistic people's leader, a socialist, and he actually overthrows the dictator of Nicaragua and the Sandinistas create a government. Here it is now, what are we, 40 years later? Something like that, close to 40 years later. And he is the dictator of Nicaragua. No holds barred. He just won the election by suppressing every opposition candidate. Oh, it's such a sad story. It appears to be that's what happened to the Hasmoneans as well. And of course, they were cutting deals with, with Rome in order to stay in power. And everything that they, once they came to Washington, everything that they had stood for, once they had power, it all just, just pissed it away. It all just, the rabbis hated them. And one would think that the rabbinic document of the Talmud would play down their military victory 
and not speak much about what they accomplished. Instead, also, as, as Ellen wrote in the, in the text, um, in the chat, it would appear that under Roman rule and the crushing blow of the Romans in destroying Judea after multiple rebellions by the Jews in the first and second centuries, to the point where Jerusalem was, we were in exile. The rabbis would be loath to celebrate military victories in their sacred calendar. And so the, um, oh, okay, share the document of the Maccabees and Josephus sources. Yes. Uh, um, stick around, David. I'll put it into a Google Doc and then share it in the chat in just a moment. Uh, Marcia says, was there prior to the Hasmoneans an explicit Jewish law about separating of secular and religious domains? Secular is a modern word, so it's not quite accurate because the king was also divinely ordained. Uh, but yes, the Torah is explicit uh, that the king's, the king's venue and the high priests have separate domains and they cannot be merged. Um, okay, so in addition, the rabbis, we, we can know from many sources in the post-destruction period and the beginning of exile, took an anti-militaristic an anti-imperial stance in their teachings. And that would be, that's a whole other, whole other lesson we could have. So it's a reasonable guess that the rab, that over those centuries, a legend had arisen, and we're talking centuries, that described the story of Hanukkah as a divine intervention more than a military victory. And so much so that the books of the Maccabees were not included in the canon of the Hebrew Bible. Why do we have them? Because the Jews who spoke Greek, who were centered in Alexandria uh, in Egypt, had a Greek translation of the Bible. And that Greek translation included the books of the Maccabees because most of those Jews probably became early Christians who, had, who adopted the Greek translation because they didn't, speak, they didn't speak or read or write Hebrew. And so the books of the Maccabees were preserved in the Christian Bible in Greek. The Jewish people did not study those books, did not read those books. It was a Christian, part of the Christian Bible. And I just learned from uh, this book that I told you about before, that what Christianity did with the, Maccabee, with the stories of the Maccabees is they made them into martyrs. The Maccabees weren't military heroes in the Christian take. They were martyrs 
who uh, were willing to lose their lives for, for their faith, which of course mirrored early Christianity's position in ancient Rome. So in the Christian Bible, they studied the book of Maccabees and held them up as prototypical martyrs. This is where the irony all comes in for me because um, the Maccabees were rehabilitated by, the, by Judaism in the 19th century with the rise of nationalism. As European cultures strove to create national myths and early Zionists strove to create a Jewish national mythos, they searched in our ancient sources for military national heroes, warriors. Because now the Bible had been translated, all of these books by the 19th century were available. The book of Maccabees was available to Jewish sources. Uh, you know, this is a time of modern scholarship. They read the book of Maccabees and the Maccabees became elevated not as martyrs, but as national military archetypes for reclaiming sovereignty in our own land. Judah Maccabee plays no role in Hanukkah celebrations. He's not even named until the late 19th century when he's rehabilitated as a national hero. This again brings me back to what I said at the beginning, uh, which is the incredible malleability of this festival uh, so that it can become a, an example of the Jewish people never letting the national flame go out. And that is the Hanukkah we grew up with because Zionism by by the founding of the state of Israel, Zionism became in effect the secular religion of the Jewish people, right? This, that we had reconstituted ourselves as a free people in our own land after 2000 years of exile. That's our story right now. And so we turn to the Maccabees as prototypical examples of the new Israeli warrior who keeps the flame alive. I don't think that's bad. Uh, it just is, if you understand what I'm saying. Meanwhile, again, ironically, going all the way back to Saturnalia, Saturnalia, I was reading more about it in the Roman Empire, uh, uh, became the festival uh, that here, let me look at on the uh, share again. I'm almost out of time, but I just want to share this with you. Um, the Roman feast of Saturnalia, honoring the god Saturn, was a week long December feast that included the observance of the winter solstice. 
At the Saturnalia, all classes of people exchanged gifts, the commonest being wax tapers, take candles, and clay dolls. These dolls represented original sacrifices of human beings. The Romans also celebrated the lengthening of days following the solstice by paying homage to Mithras, an ancient Persian god of light. December 25th was the day originally determined in the Roman Empire as the winter solstice. And the celebration of the birthday or nativity of the sun, Saul, S-O-L, the god Saul. And it was not until much later that a calendar revision changed it to December 21st. But regardless of the calendrical change, the significance and festivities that had been centered on that day remain. Since no one in the church knew when Jesus was born, where did the church get the idea of celebrating it on December 25th? The answer is they got it from the pagans who had several festivals at that time of the winter solstice. Many authorities now believe that Christmas was actually adapted from a Roman celebration called Saturnalia. Um, uh, hold on, I'm just gonna skip a little. Um, it looks like Christmas is celebrated in ways that are directly bar uh, borrowed from a festival to an agricultural god of the Romans from December 17th to the 25th. The Church of Rome deliberately chose December 25th as the date of Christ's birth to turn people away from a pagan feast that was observed at the same time. The 25th of December had been established as the festival of the invincible sun by Emperor Aurelian, um, etc. He made December 25th the birthday of the pagan unconquered sun god, and now the official holiday it is now, the birthday of Jesus. The pagans had no difficulty worshiping the Catholic Madonna and child because they were seen as another manifestation of the queen of heaven and her son. So it was no compromise for them. So the Roman empire, when it becomes the Holy Roman empire, just changes the U to an O. I know they didn't speak English. Um, but you know, son to son, it's all the same story. It's the birth of the light, the rebirth of the light. And uh, now here we are in the 21st century and our Hanukkah is now under the uh, incredible gravitational pull of Christmas, which both seem to have their origins in the same earlier solstice festivals thousands of years ago. And so the dance just continues. And it's quite beautiful. I love how we've done it. You know, I love the idea of adding increasing light for eight days and the stories of heroism and the stories of faith and, and, and. Um, and I'll repeat it one more time. It's just such an incredible mashup um, that it's fun to try to tease out these threads and see maybe, I mean, these are educated guesses I'm making about how they intertwine through human history. 
Um, I think we can, I think we can embrace with great pride our solstice festival as a specifically Jewish expression of what it seems to be a universal human desire and observation of how the cosmos works and our place in it. I left a lot of stuff out, but I think we, I think I kind of came, came around. So thanks for letting me share all of that. Thank you. And Joan says, and there's the problem of the Southern hemisphere. Um, right, because all of this develops in the Northern hemisphere and that's really important, Joan. Uh, we really haven't ranged down there. Ju Judaism and quote Western civilization is is so northern hemis hemisphere centric, isn't it? It's a, it is a real problem. That's fascinating. Okay. Uh, happy Hanukkah, everybody. Let's, um, yes, but, right, I assume that they have their own uh, uh, seasonal celebrations, the, but it's interesting that we know so little about it, uh, which is a phenomenon of our, I guess you'd say Eurocentrism. Um, uh, great. Okay, so a couple of announcements. We keep doing Hanukkah every night at 6.30 online. Tomorrow night, Friday, you can also come in person. Yes, a Jewish flavored solstice celebration. I really like that phrase. Thank you, Deborah, so much. Um, we don't have to deny any layer of it to have it be ours, our delicious, wonderful holiday. Um, tomorrow night at 6.30, Friday, we'll be online at 6.30, but we will also be anyone who wants to in person in the sanctuary. If you want to come in person, just like our other in-person events, you need to sign up online. It's in the weekly email or on the website and upload your vaccination certificate. We'll do that from 6.30 to 7 tomorrow night. Then from seven to 7.30, hang out if you're here in person. And then at 7.30, and maybe we'll just hang out online too. And then at 7.30, the weekly email went out this morning and the sign up link is in it. Thank you, Rabbi Ellen. And then at 7.30 tomorrow night, we'll have our Shabbat service, both in person and online. So we'll be together for both Hanukkah lighting tomorrow, online and on Zoom, at 6.30 and then services at 7.30. On Saturday at 4.30, we're having our in-person outdoor Hanukkah party. We have a, a small tent up on the grounds. Uh, Diane Colello and the holiday committee have been getting stuff ready for us. I have some outdoor heaters that I think are working well. I need to double check. And we're gonna celebrate. Uh, Outdoors, we'll start with Havdalah, we'll light candles. Diane, is there any help people can uh, offer? Okay, unmute yourself. Keep trying. 
That's not working. Okay, I'll say it. Um, we're going to have a, a Hanukkah gift exchange. If you want to bring something on Saturday at 4.30, wrap it up. If it's particularly age-specific um, or, or gender-specific, you can mark so. But then we'll just have a table with gifts. And anybody who wants to take a, get a potluck Hanukkah gift, uh, we'll do that. 4.30 to 6 on Sunday. Bring a joke, bring a poem, bring a song, dress warm. And that's from 4.30 to 6. And then at 6.30, we'll be online again for those who couldn't travel here. Okay? Okay. Um, as, thanks, as is our custom, let's take time, if you have the time, if you don't, uh, farewell, and I'll see you soon, for a healing prayer and for saying Kaddish. So, uh, I'll read the name. Echazan Uri Michael ben Pnina, Linda Dias, Harab Miriam Yelbat Sara, Neshama bat Luba, Bina bat Avraham, Echazan Jessica Leish, Max, Ruby, Joshua, Catherine, Michael Esfond. If anyone else wants to type things, please do. David Tillman, Michaelis Fons. Reb Marsha Prager. Susan Jacobs. Harry, Amala, and Eric. Me May the source of strength who bless the ones before us help us find the courage to make our lives a blessing and let us say Bless those in need of healing with refuah shlema, the renewal of body, the renewal of spirit, and let us say, Amen. Acts. Help us find the courage to make our lives a blessing. And let us say,
praying for healing. And if anyone's reciting Kaddish, Barbara, would you like to recite for your mom, Helen? Anyone else reciting here? You can put the name in the chat. Helen Mermel is Barbara's mom. Great. Ikadal, Ikadash, Shmei Rabah. Amen. Ve'alma, Divra, Chirutei, Pemelich, Malchutei. V'chayechon, Uvyumechon, V'chayei, Dachol, Beit Yisrael. V'agala, Uvyzman, Kari, Nimbru. Amen. Yehei, Shmei, Rabah, Murach, Ve'alam, Ulmei. Yitparach, Yishtabach, Yitpa'ar, Yitromam, Yitnaseh. Itadar, it alev, it halal, shmed kutsha, priho, the ela, min kol berchata, veshirata, tushbachata, venechamata, tamiran beama, bimru, amen. Yehe shlama rabba, min shemaya, the chayim alenu ve alkoyis fael, bimru, amen. Ose shalom bimrumav, huya ase shalom alenu, ve alkoyis fael, ve alkoyos ve tevel, bimru. Amen. May her memory be a blessing and also Miriam welcome. So David, before you go, let me just turn this document I was using into a um, Google Doc and put it in the chat. And anybody who needs to go, go ahead, but let me, it'll only take me a moment. Yes, Hanukkah Sameach. Okay, here we go. Um, David, I made these notes and they're not cited. Most of it comes from Wikipedia, but there were several other sources. And since these were just my notes, uh, I don't have the citation, but they're still interesting. Okay. Documents, create a new document, paste. There we go. Okay, now I have to name it. Um, and take that, copy that, and put this in the chat. Uh, everyone. Magic. There, okay. Thanks, so interesting. It sure is. Oh, have a beautiful day, afternoon, everybody. <sighs> Thanks for letting me share all that. That was fun. Rabbi, I have to tell you that Elf on a Shelf started out on Shark Tank. Really? Yes. Well, these... that is a direct route to, that's amazing. Yeah, there was these two Jewish guys that came on and they said <laughs> we we're upset that everybody has something for Christmas. So we are creating Elf on a Shelf. Oh, Mench no, on a Bench. On a bench. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, bench. Elf on a Bench. And then oh, it was, and then there's a, also a Bubby too. A Bubby on the Bench. Yes, right. 
So that's where it originated. I just I, throw that out to you. Right. I think Santa Claus was um, produced through Coca-Cola. Oh, yeah. Go ahead and read all about it. It's hysterical. It's all <clears throat> fascinating. I mean, we are in the grip of consumer capitalism. That's what runs our lives. And so don't forget that, everybody. <laughs> and then the other thing I want to tell you, when I lived in Spain and when it was Christmas time, the tree was not decorated with ornaments, but with candles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the old way to do it. Uh, None of this ahead. ornamentation stuff. Go, go, go do a Google, Google search and find a good article on the origin of Christmas customs. It's all totally as fascinating as what I was sharing with you today about Hanukkah. It's, it's this incredible mashup. Um, well, you know, the, the thing about Saturnalia is somebody was selling those candles and clay dolls. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but they so, weren't wrapped in plastic. By the way, this this elf on a shelf thing is like taking over. I know. Um, and it's um, and now there are ancillary products. And so the parents in our family school, we were they were all just like, like I had to get my daughter this, and I had to get my kid because it's like I give up. You know, it was really interesting. And I had this um, uh, unfortunately sinister and realistic thing that. If Santa's watching you, I wouldn't be surprised if elves on the shelf start having, you know, cameras and uh, things in them, just like Alexa does, you know. And yeah, Santa's watching whether you're naughty or nice. It's like the whole thing gives me the creeps. But anyway, that's that's me. It was taken on by QVC. Of course. And then it went to Bed Bath and Beyond. So that's the origins of it. Right, that's Believe quite an argument. Have I said part. this, but our gift giving thing on this Saturday at the party is only bring things that you already have that oh, you I don't forgot want to say it. Yeah. You may have said that. I don't didn't. go out and buy anything. No, re-gifting, re-gifting. Re yes, we're very recyclable. That's right. Yes. Yes. Wonderful. Yes. Okay. I, I enjoyed everything, Rabbi. Thanks. See you tonight. Bye-bye. Happy Hanukkah, everyone. Happy Hanukkah, everyone. Happy Hanukkah, thank you. Bye-bye.